locked behind our door. Hi, Julie. Hello, Nancy. Good to be back. It is. You just took a long trip. Uh, you know, it's it's nice you're back after your travels. Yes. Um, just got back from Ireland, so still having a little jet lag, adjusting my hours. Um, I did post pictures on our Facebook page. If anyone wants to see our little trip, we took my dad. It was a reconnection of cousins, basically. So it was nice. My dad is 85, and we took him back to the to the old country to see. It's so cool and yeah, absolutely beautiful. Really nice. You shared it with me. Oh I, yeah, I want to go. I mean, that Every, is re- it was really interesting, especially your family. Yes. Anyway, so today um, we have a really interesting episode. Uh, after our ongoing, or I should say, our ongoing conversations and discussions in search of different topics, et cetera, we were we've been looking for quite a while for a professional to give us more information on. Uh, the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. And through that, we came across, uh, through this journey, the most wonderful psychiatrist who is our guest today, Dr. Saul Zelon. I mean, I had a brief conversation just to, when he agreed to come on, just to talk about what we would talk about. And um, wow. So I feel as though, and also I'm glad, I think I locked him into two. So (laughs) I feel like sit back and let's learn. Uh, just a little background about our guest. Dr. Zelon is an adult child and adolescent psychiatrist who originally trained in pediatrics. However, after five years of working in general pediatrics and pediatric hematology oncology, Dr. Zelon decided to move over to psychiatry, which has now become his primary focus. So he's really going to be able to fulfill the uh question of some treatment, uh, specifically DBT, dialectical behavior therapy, and things like that. But also, the place he works, very interesting. We'll hear about that. And as well, his whole theory and thoughts on and just the different aspects of diagnosis and you know how, how things can get so clouded. It's not clear-cut with mental illness as it is with medical medical situations. So, I mean, other physical me- medical situations. So we'll hear, hear a lot about, uh, a lot about things we didn't even know to ask about, which is the best of the best. So yeah. welcome Dr. Saul Zelon. So happy welcome. to have you on. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. And, and is it fine to call you Saul? Yes, that's fine. I always like to make sure. Um, first, so as I said in my little introduction, we had a brief conversation recently, you and I, about what you would talk about. I think it's, we always ask our guests, how did you get involved in this? How did you get interested? I think that's the best place to start because when I heard that you were first a pediatrician, I was like, oh my God, you know, wow. So, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into this field and, um, about yourself and then we'll go on from there. Sure. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, for the invitation here. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I I think since I was very young, I knew that I wanted to work with children. Um, I'm ten years older than my uh, younger sibling, and I feel like I I helped uh, helped raise her in some ways. And from a very young age, I've always loved uh, being around children and taking care of babies and children. And so I think uh, I think my mother predicted that I was going to be a pediatrician. And uh, that's that's the way I went initially. 
And then, as you mentioned, I, I worked for a while in pediatric hematology and oncology uh, for the stem cell transplant program, as well as the program that uh, takes care of uh, patients with sickle cell and uh, sickle cell anemia and thalassemia. And uh, while I was working for that department, I discovered that there were a lot of families really struggling with uh, sticking to the to the prescribed treatment because a lot of families in those uh, departments really have um, chronic conditions that require long-lasting treatments, uh, sometimes lifelong treatments. And we found that a lot of families were really having a hard time adhering to those treatments, and that led to life-threatening situations. And what I found was that I didn't know what to do about that. And uh, I tried talking to all of my colleagues, and we all tried working together to try and find a solution because it, it was life-threatening in many cases. And so I got very interested in that question, how do we change behavior? Because it became a question of behavior. You know, we had effective medications, we had effective treatment protocols, but that required a great deal of effort on the part of the families. And it wasn't a matter of motivation. You know, they wanted their children to be healthy. The children wanted to be healthy. This was not a question of motivation, clearly. So I just got very interested in that question. And I was trying to decide whether I wanted to go on for training in hematology and oncology and do a fellowship in hemonc or pursue some training that would allow me and help me address the more behavioral issues. And I I chose the path of psychiatry, mental health, and trying to understand behavior. Wow. You know, it's interesting when you say that. Um, I think about different things that I've heard over social media or in the media regarding, you know, people with cancer in general or people being sick, that it's kind of, not that it could be a mind over matter, but that having a positive attitude definitely helps heal your body. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And the question, the question for me is, you know, where does that positive attitude come from? Mm-hmm. How do we, how do we learn a positive attitude? I agree that, that people who are achieving their goals in life oftentimes have a positive attitude, but which came first? Did the positive attitude right. come first or did the achievement of the goals come first? Well, as is oftentimes the case in complex issues, I think the answer is yes. It's very difficult to tease out the the components of that kind of a network. Um, And so that's the million-dollar question. How do we get someone, how do we support someone getting to a place where they are both achieving their goals and they are experiencing the positive attitude, the positive emotional experience that accompanies achieving those goals? Those two questions are linked, in my opinion, and it's not clear which one comes first. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that. I feel like it's intertwined. So yes. one definitely will affect the other. Yes. And also, I, I think it's, you know, so often, at least I think of it as stemming from their surroundings, the person, yes. you know, what their, let's say, family circumstances. A lot of times you think, you know, I look at parents bringing up kids and if the parents are positive thinkers they're the kids are living these children are living in environments where they look at the glass half full instead of half empty 
And if you have somebody who's growing up with a parent or two that just don't see the light and see the opposite, whatever life circumstances bring you, I think, you know, that plays a part in how you take it on throughout life. I think that can be true. I think it's also possible for, um, well, first of all, let me, let me back up and say, I 100% agree that the environment, the context is supremely important to take into consideration. This is not meant to be a blame the parents. Yeah, type of right. Paradigm. That's right. Now, it is meant to say that we are we are creatures of of context. We learn from the environment, and we also have an impact on what the environment teaches us. So there is a reciprocal relationship. As we learn from the environment, we give feedback back to the environment. And that changes the environment. And then the changed environment has an impact on us. And so there is an interdependence between the individual and the environment. And let me just be clear, right now I'm presenting the model that DBT adheres to. It's not necessarily the model that everyone adheres to, but this is a very DBT type of model to say this. For the sake of our listeners and ourselves too, of explaining everything, um, DBT, dialectical behavior therapy. Can you explain what that is? Yeah. Right. Uh, dialectical behavior therapy was a ther- is a therapy that was developed by Dr. Marsha Lenahan at the University of Washington in Seattle. She, uh, she started out her career being very interested in the question of how to help clients who were suicidal and self-harming. Because at the time that she started her work in the field of clinical psychology, there was no consensus on the uh, best practice, the most evidence-based way of helping people who were suicidal and self-harming. And so that was the question she was interested in. And she started to use some of the standard techniques that had been described at the time, and she ran into a whole bunch of problems. And in her efforts to find an effective treatment and adapt some of the standard techniques to suicidal and self-harming clients, she had to come up with solutions to the problems that she encountered. And those solutions came together into the therapy that we call dialectical behavior therapy today, which she published, first published in her book uh, in 1993, and which has since been, I think, validated time and time again in that treatment population, as well as in other populations of of clients. And can you explain a little bit how it works? What does it look like? Sure. (laughs) Uh, Yes, I can. It's a loaded question, I know, but... No, no, it's fine. Um, I want to be mindful of the fact that I could also give uh, a uh, week-long full-time seminar. (laughs) Behind our door, we'll take that too. Yeah, no problem. So I'll try and I'll try and boil it down. You know, for somebody who's never been through uh, DBT therapy, like you walk in and what is it? What does it look like? Well, first of all, what it looks like is uh, it looks like an entire team. Okay. Uh, Treatment is delivered not by an individual therapist, but by a team of therapists. And there's a reason for that. But let me just kind of give the broad brushstrokes overview. So there's a team of therapists in part because there are several components to the therapy. One component of the therapy is a curriculum. It's a classroom. Uh, It's a classroom that you go to, it's not group therapy, and it's a classroom that you go to to learn skills. 
there are a set of skills that Marsha has identified, Marsha and, and uh, subsequent researchers as well who've contributed, have identified are useful. And when people learn these skills, what we observe is that the frequency of suicidal and self-harming behavior decreases. Uh, there are also many other outcomes that we track, but we can just kind of keep our eye on, on, on that for now. So when people learn these skills, when people receive the treatment that, in, that includes these skills, the frequency of suicidal behavior and self-harming behavior decreases. DBT also includes individual therapy. In addition to going to a class and learning a curriculum, a client will meet with their individual therapist, uh, probably weekly, um, and they will get support on an individual basis that is aimed at helping people process uh, their emotions, helping people um, increase their motivation for the treatment, getting that kind of individual contact that we all need as humans. And the individual therapist also figures out how to bring the therapy to the client. In other words, we as individual therapists are charged with the idea that you know we have to adapt the therapy to the client's specific needs. And we have to be very responsive to that client's specific needs which can't really be done in a so much in a group setting. It really requires one-on-one. -on -one. So dialectic, uh, the word dialectic, as one of my colleagues said, it's a fancy philosophy word. That means bringing together two things that look like they don't go together. And so one of the dialectics in DBT is that people need to learn skills to help them solve real problems, and they need very real human contact to get some, some very real emotional support. And so how do you bring those two things together in a dialectic? Well, you have a classroom where they learn a curriculum and you have an individual therapy session where you get that kind of personalized attention that's a real need of human beings. So that's, yeah. that's just broad brush strokes very much just scratching the surface. And how long of a, like um, when you say that, you know, especially with the classroom, they're learning coping mechanisms, they're learning skills that, you know, sort of gives you the idea that they're going to be trained to do this themselves at some point. It's, you know, DBT is something you learn and then you have for the rest of time. How long is something like this therapy? Is it a year? Is it a month? Um, what is the usual time span for the learning process? I mean, one can go through therapy for a lifetime, but mm -hmm. with DBT specifically to learn um, how to how to use this for your life, what does that uh, time look like? That will vary from program to program. A lot of adult programs, um, the initial stage of DBT will be a year. Um, but there's there's a fair amount of variation. Some programs will be uh, less time. Some programs are structured to be maybe on the order of three to six months. And then, like I said, we have to figure out how to bring the, the, the treatment to the client. And some clients need more time. Some clients need mm -hmm. less time. So that also has to be somewhat individualized. But we're not talking about weeks to months. We're talking about months to years, uh, potentially. Right. And is this in conjunction with medication therapy? It can be. Um, I mean, the conversation about medication has to do, uh, I think, is, is, is a function of what people's diagnoses are. Mm -hmm. we, we, at the present time, 
don't have very strong evidence for any one medication being effective in the treatment of, for example, borderline personality disorder. Uh, in my opinion, DBT is the most evidence-based treatment for borderline personality disorder. There are other treatments, and they do have evidence for them as well. But that's not to say that people in DBT won't be receiving medications, because people might be receiving medications for other diagnoses, such as depression or anxiety. Um, so the question of medication is a complex one, as, as you could imagine. Right. And our goal is always to work as a team. So if someone comes into DBT treatment and they're taking medications, our goal is to in involve the medication provider, if it's a psychiatrist or some other provider, a nurse practitioner or a PA with, with prescribing uh, ability, our goal is to involve them in the treatment team and uh, help them understand what the treatment approach is for the borderline symptoms, for the symptoms that are related to the diagnosis of, of borderline personality disorder. Really fascinating. Yeah. So you're, yeah. you're retraining the way, you're retraining behavior with a person so that, you know, it's ingrained, they can use these coping skills and learn how to use these tools. Right, as we oftentimes say, we wanna teach people to be their own therapist. Mm -hmm. Wow. We want them to learn these skills so well that they become automatic. One of the metaphors I use is, you know, imagine you're in a very stressful situation. Uh, I don't know, you just got in a car accident or uh, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, let's just take that. And someone walks up to you on the street out of the blue and they say, quick, tell me what's one plus one. Like no matter how stressful the situation is, no matter how odd you think that question might be, you would still be able to answer it for the most part, right? Many people would be able to answer one plus one equals two, regardless of the stress. Why is that? Well, it's because we've learned it so automatically. It just rolls off our tongue, right? It's just totally automatic. We want people to learn their skills that automatically. We want people to be able to understand the situation they're in and regardless of the stress, be skillful. Now that's a big ask, right? Like we're not asking people to say one plus one equals two. We're asking for a much higher level of, or much, much more complex skill set to be produced. But my metaphor is simply to illustrate that this idea that there are things that we learn to do automatically, and that's what we're targeting in, in DBT, that kind of automatic uh, effectiveness. It's almost like training, like, you know, how the military goes and, and does months and months of training. And so they don't have time. They just react to whatever right. the situation is. It's, it's right. kind of similar. So it's it becomes second nature or even law enforcement. You know, we don't think about things. We just do things because that's what we've been training to do. Exactly. Right. You know, you want the pilot of your plane to have, you know, done so many hours in a simulator and mm -hmm. so many flight hours in, in an actual plane that even under very stressful and unusual situations, all of their skills are very automatic and they can get that plane on the ground. That's the goal. Yeah, really interesting. So when you're when you were talking about, you know, that it's a team kind of um, a team model, a team effort, it was reminding me to ask you about your current, I should say, place of employment. Then I forget the name and, and you're out of California as well. Yeah. Um, we should have mentioned that. But it was very interesting. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? 
Sure. Um, so I currently work, I'm employed by Traditions Behavioral Health, and they are um, a group that helps doctors and organizations get together. They work uh, primarily in mental health. And so my colleagues, uh, for the most part, are psychiatrists. And um, they really facilitate kind of filling the needs that organizations have for mental health providers, for psychiatrists. And uh, they help bring us together. And they've been really wonderful for me because I feel like they they really help me negotiate all of the uh, kind of logistical issues <laughs> of employment, you know, your paycheck, your time card, your benefits, your, you know, all of that, um, gets coordinated through them because I officially work for them, even though, uh, the client organization is the setting in which I actually see, uh, clients. So I, I currently am assigned to a position with Marin County, and the, the clients and families that I see are county clients of Marin County, but I'm officially an employee of Traditions Behavioral Health. And for me, it's a, it's a model that really works. And it's isn't that cool. unique? I don't know if I'm just uninformed on this, but I feel as though, is, it, is this a common setup? I think it is. I mean, it, it, in, in one manifestation or another, uh, doctors oftentimes belong to physician medical groups. Right. And you don't necessarily always see that because you might walk into a hospital and everybody's wearing the hospital badge. But um, the administrative side of things is structured in such a way that the doctors might work for a physician medical group uh, that does that does a similar thing that performs a similar function. And so you see a lot of different ages, your adult and child and adult psychiatrist at this point or. Yeah, the program I'm in is predominantly children and adolescents, but we do see adults up until I think 21 or 22. And so, um, and I've done, a, I've done in my career, I've spent a fair amount of time seeing the full range of adult, the adult population. So with these, and I know you don't, I know you do a whole gamut, but with something like DBT, is that is that effective at any age or is there a certain age that you would, I mean, obviously not a five-year-old, but um, what age group does that start to be? Would you say that that's an appropriate treatment? Well, it has been how young in both children, sorry, in both adolescents and adults. Uh, I would have to look up the studies to see how young they went in the studies on that's adolescents. Curious. Yeah. Um, but I would say that so many parents, so, so the adolescent DBT program is a family oriented program. Uh, the, the, the validated model, um, consists of bringing families into the treatment and the entire family that is the adolescent plus the parent or the caregiver or the guardian goes to the skills class together. It's a multifamily. Wow. wow. That's really in, interesting. In the model compliant, what we would call model compliant or the validated model. Now there are some programs that find a that find a way to make it work without uh, doing that. And, you know, what's effective is effective. Um, but the way it was developed by uh, Jill Rathus and Alec Miller, uh, who are the developers of adolescent DBT, is that families come into the treatment together. And I have witnessed many, many parents saying to me, hey, I feel like these skills are helping me. I was I be just going to say that. I bet. <laughs> And and so the question is, to what extent are we just promoting 
mental health in general. Mm-hmm. If that's true, is that benefiting the younger children who perhaps aren't officially in the treatment? But if the parents feel like their their mental health or their emotional well-being, let's just put it in you know perhaps non-technical terms, their emotional well-being is being promoted and improved, doesn't that help the younger children as well? I don't know the answer to that, but my hypothesis is yes. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, it's, I mean, if you have someone in your family that's suffering and the whole family gets involved in the treatment, I think it, it benefits the whole family. I mean, I, I think it's, agree. for me, it seems very obvious that, you know, if, if someone has whatever illness it is and no one else is participating, how could they possibly even understand it? So I right. think it starts with the understanding. And then there's also the other aspect of, you know, mental health issues can run in a family. So even though your child may be suffering, you may then look in the mirror and say, oh, wait, that sounds a lot like me. Right. Not not to mention also the positive support of somebody, who, you know, stigma wise to take the stigma to uh, the lowest level possible to have your family members sit there with you and have it, you know, let's everybody let's everybody go at this together really is, you know, a total gift in the whole thing. Yeah, I think social stigma is a is a problem that we are very concerned about in DBT, Um, the entire model of so-called mental illness. I'm not a big fan of that term, but we mm-hmm. tend to use it. Right. Perhaps we could describe it as emotional suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, the model in DBT is very, very, very concerned with what, what we oftentimes call social stigma and the effects of social stigma in promoting emotional suffering or mental illness. And we are very concerned to, to, to do something about that, to be proactive about stigma, about the effects of the environment. Yeah, so just the very sitting there with your family members is a step in the right direction. One would hope. I mean, yeah, right. I think I think with any therapy, we have to. One very interesting question to be investigated is how does that therapy actually work? What are the components of the therapy that are actually necessary for the therapy to work, for the treatment to work? And you could certainly consider the hypothesis that. It works in part in adolescent DBT because of a reduction in stigma, and it reduces stigma in part because the family is there with the identified client, and the client sees, hey, I'm not the only one who has to change here. I'm not the one who is carrying the problem. I'm not the one who is the problem, using air quotes. They can see that other people are taking ownership of the problem as well. So, so adults that are going through DBT therapy, do they in the classroom have support as well? I mean, that what you're saying is um, the model for a child or adolescent with their parents or whomever's whatever family member support. What about an adult that is doing are there? Is there support like that that's requested? I think that over time we have learned the importance of that. And my understanding, this is just kind of through the gossip mill. <laughs> uh, <but laughs> that's I, okay. My understanding is that when uh, Joe Rathus and Alec Miller developed this idea of the multifamily group as an integral part of the treatment for adolescent DBT, that the adult programs, the adult providers also started to think along those lines and started to think about, well, maybe we should have some friends and family groups uh, perhaps running in parallel with the adult program so that the friends and family members 
can learn these skills as well. In addition to that, uh, we've talked about how I'm involved with the National Education Alliance on Borderline Personality Disorder, and they have a program designed for um, significant others and family members of those who have been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. It's called the Family Connections Program. And that program is also designed to, uh, to provide support and education for, uh, for family members or you know, significant others or coping with the effects of their family member's diagnosis. So I think the, the profession has evolved yeah. and we have, we, have, we have begun to appreciate how important it is to provide support and guidance and education for the environment as well as for the individual who care quote carries again in air quotes the diagnosis yeah sure makes and sense I, and i re i really love that because way back when um i found a support group it was called the balanced mind foundation which is no longer in existence um i think they've been taken in by dbsa but that's where i really got most of my understanding my knowledge um in learning about my son's illness and how to cope with it and how to take care of myself in the process. And so um, I'm glad to see that that's expanding over the years because that was 20 years ago. Right. And, you know, programs like Family Connections have been studied. It's an evidence-based program. They've done outcomes research, looking at the effects of participating in the program on the participants. And now, remember, we're talking about the family members. These are not folks who have been actually diagnosed with the so-called right. disorder, again, using air quotes. Mm -hmm. but rather those who are who are struggling to cope and the the data indicate that they do experience a greater sense of mastery a, a decreased sense of burden and being overwhelmed and a lot of the program is focused on what you just mentioned Julie which is self-care how do i how do i take care of myself in the midst of uh, this extreme distress that i'm feeling because because a person i love is is going through so much suffering. Yes. For for anyone uh for our listeners that we if you look back in our podcast library behind our door interviewed I believe Tina Moore from NEAB mm -hmm. uh yes. which is the organization we're talking about and she um gave a, a personal story attached to also being a program director of how this works. So if you're interested, you should look back in that because it really is a uh, phenomenal organization, and you can hear more specifics about that. Um, as well, NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, has the same family connection kind of, you know, support groups, classes that just take you into that area of you're not alone, you learn from others. This stigma is, you know, really in a place that doesn't exist when you're in these rooms talking with everyone about uh, your own personal situations. It's just such a tremendous help. And just, you know, no doubt helps at home. So uh, it's, a, it's a great model. It, these, these organizations are key to success of moving on with these diagnoses. Yeah. And in the DBT world, we really believe that it, that it also benefits the person who has, has received the diagnosis. No doubt. That when family members learn to take care of themselves, uh, they, they themselves, of course, experience the benefits, but the family member also experiences benefits, um, indirectly. Yeah, it's, it's just terrific. I mean, 
these are the best organizations on earth for this kind of situation. Right. And when you know better, you do better. And I feel like after I connected with all these other parents, I, I really became a better parent for it. And, yeah. You know, my child obviously benefited from that because I wasn't so angry all the time and right. um, or sad all the time, you know, because you go through the array of emotions upon diagnosis and it's hard to catch up with that and right. and figure out, you know, what is the new normal, as I call it? Like, what does normal look like now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that um, we definitely encourage uh, participants. So the, the Family Connections program, I teach in that program as well. Um, oh, that's great. In the Family Connections program, uh, we definitely encourage them after the 12-week program, it's usually a 12-week program, to form support groups and to stay connected. And we don't share their contact information. Of course, everything is voluntary and everything's anonymous, but they are free to share their contact information with one another and maintain connections after completion of the of the workshop if they if they wish. And I love yeah. that you invite the friends in too, because I think oftentimes friends, you know, don't understand the diagnosis, don't know how to be supportive. And I I think it um can strengthen a friendship. Yeah. If a person suffering can invite someone and say, Hey, will you come with me? And will you sit with me? Will you learn about it? I think more and more we are learning about um, the importance of the network. And by that, I mean the whole range of social connections that each of us as, as human beings, as, as we are a social creature, mm -hmm. the impact of those social connections on our emotional well-being. And uh, Marsha, I think, realized this. I don't know if she was... I can't say she was the first person to realize this, but she certainly realized the importance of that network uh, on the emotional well-being of the clients she was treating. And she very deliberately built the therapy around a, a conceptual foundation of a social network. And it's interesting, I didn't actually realize how profound a change this was until I started teaching in the Family Connections program when I started seeing my students struggle with some of the ideas we were presenting and I realized, oh goodness, I really do need to validate that this is a, this is a very different paradigm. This is a very different working model of, of how we operate as people. And, and we need to be very explicit about that. And so then I went back into the literature, I went back into Marsha's 1993 book, and I found the passages where she talks about it. It's a 500-page wow. book, so it's wow. easy to, to, to lose it. But it's there, and it's profound, in my opinion. And it makes such sense. It's so progressive for yeah. 1993, if you think about it. Yeah. I, it, I, it changed the whole thing. It changed. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, this is a complete gear change. Yeah, I think it was. I think, I think that she... Like I said, I, I don't know that I can say she's the first one uh, to come up with this idea because she cites other authors who were her inspiration. I do think that she has has built a, a system based on this idea that is profound, and she has uh, she has studied it. She has validated it. There's, yeah, you said evidence-based, so right. that's really key. Right. Um, I mean, don't get me started. I could go on and on and on about the contributions <laughs> that I think Lenahan has made to uh, clinical psychology and our understanding of ourselves as as people. Um, so, 
I'm a big fan, as you can tell. Yeah, fascinating, yeah. though. Yeah. really is. I mean, I feel like I've learned so much. And I thought I, I knew about TBT therapy, but it really um, opened my horizons. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it, was, it was a profound shift for me as well, it, yeah. definitely. Well, yeah. very interesting. Well, Salt, we can't thank you enough. This has been an eye-opening conversation, to say the least. I mean, uh, so much hope, too. I mean, this is there's nothing like positive energy coming from these talks. And there's just, you know, these are these are tough diagnoses. And, you know, uh, I, I feel like the struggles of all of the family members and the individuals with um, serious mental health issues. This is a hopeful conversation. So can't thank you enough. Super interesting, too. And yeah. I can't wait to find out about what else we're going to talk about. Right. Until <laughs> next time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We welcome your input. To contact us or any of our guests, please email us at behindourdoor@mail.com. That's behindourdoor@mail.com. And please don't forget to like and share our podcast. Um, leave us a rating. Tell us how we're doing. We really want your feedback. It's important to us. We are so thankful that you are here and listening to us. If you or someone you know is in crisis struggling with mental illness, you can call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or the NAMI Helpline at 1-800-950-6264. Until next time, please join us for another conversation behind our door. Thanks for listening.